0: Well, if you haven't done it yet, if you could open to Matthew chapter 1. And I am so excited. Pastor Austin, I know, feels the same way as I do. I just love Christmas. I love this time of the year. There's something. I I think I mentioned this a while ago. This doesn't happen very much in me anymore because I'm getting older. I'm 50 now. And so there's not very often that those excited, I call them whippoorwills, go through your heart. You know what I'm talking about? When all of a sudden something just tremors through you because you're excited. Maybe it's a memory. Maybe it's something that you're about to do. That doesn't happen too much in me anymore, but it did a couple of weeks ago when I was thinking about the, the holidays, Thanksgiving and Christmas and this sermon series that we're looking at. I love the sermon series. If you don't like it, it doesn't matter. I like it enough for you and myself. This is exciting to me because we're a church that is actually coming through Christmas, I hope, learning to live on mission. That's the entire point of this sermon series, that we would learn to live this adventure, this mission. So, let's talk about adventure. Church, we are on an adventure. And that's an interesting word, especially right now at Christmas time. So here it is again. Advent is a word that means the arrival of a notable person, event, or thing. That's what Advent means. Churches all over the world, they're celebrating the Advent. They started a few weeks ago. It's four weeks before Christmas. It ends the the Sunday or the the weekend before Christmas. We are in the Advent season. Here we go. We're celebrating that God arrived on earth in the form of baby Jesus. But notice that Advent is the root of adventure. And I never really noticed that before this year. I didn't read anything that, that alerted me to that. I was just r- getting ready. I'm, I'm, I'm doing what pastors do, I guarantee you. Remember, I don't do that too often, but this one I'm pretty sure I'm right. I'm pretty sure if you've been in ministry long enough, you come to Christmas every year going, all right, Lord, and this is awesome to preach on, but man, how do I do it in a fresh way? And so I'm studying and I'm praying, and all of a sudden I realize, wait a minute, Advent's the, the root word of adventure. And adventure, I looked it up in the dictionary, means something that is about to happen. And so all of a sudden it began to dawn on me, something that I had known, but I had never really connected them together. There were four angelic visits during the advent, the preparation for the arrival of Jesus, four angelic visits that gave people an adventure, a mission. And what I began to realize and what I began to study is that their adventures are really not that different than our own. And we can learn a great deal by looking at the Bible's Christmas adventures. So we've looked at Zechariah's, we've looked at Mary's, and now we're gonna look at Joseph's. Let me give you actually five points from the text ...in Matthew chapter 1. We're going to work our way through it verse by verse. And I'm going to pull out of these verses five points... That, I, ...that can help us get on adventure. Get on mission to get the world ready for the second advent. Now can I pause for just a moment? You've heard of the phrase second advent. That means that Jesus Christ is going to return. And our job, Christian brother and sister... ...our job, not just the pastors, not just the elders... The job of every Christian is to get people in the world ready for Christ's return. That's our mission. That's our adventure. How do we do it? What can we learn from Joseph? Five things. Here's the first. Here we go. God's adventures. Boy, I hope you're listening to this. This is huge, especially if you're younger. God's adventures look very different than what we would expect. Now, let me just say right off the bat before we even read the verse. Joseph, whom this is centering on, this entire message, centering on Joseph and by extension and implication Jesus, but everything that we're going to see about Joseph, you've got to put this in your mind, he was likely between 16 and 18 years old, surely no older than 18. So put yourself into this for a moment and I want to speak to you who are younger, just for a moment. God wants to do extraordinary things through you, and your age is not limiting Him. Are you hearing that? And I want you to hear that by faith. It doesn't matter if you're 15, 10, 20, 30. By the way, it doesn't matter if you're 80 or 90. But your age is not ever a limit to what God could do through you. The adventures that He is going to call you to live... Your age is never an obstacle. You can never use age as a reason for not doing what God is going to ask you to do and not doing what he's going to enable you to do. So get that in your mind before we even start looking at the scriptures. Joseph is no more than 18, likely between 16 and 18. Here we go, verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. we got to get our bearings Let's just pause for a moment, get the context. Last week, Mary's Christmas adventure, we saw that she and Joseph were betrothed. Now, let me give you a little backdrop on that, a little bit more than I did last week. Israel had three phases in marriage, three. The first one, not surprisingly, is engagement. And that's arranged, surprisingly, by either the parents of the the guy and the girl or a professional matchmaker. They use these in Israel. They use them because sometimes an objective person could do a little bit better even than parents could in matching up a young girl with a young boy. Once engaged... The couple entered the second phase. I told you there's three. The second phase is called betrothal. It's a little bit what we call engagement. It's a little bit, as you're gonna see, more legal and more stiff. It lasts one year almost always, sometimes six months, but anytime in between six months and a year. And and the betrothed couple was known as husband and wife. Now you gotta get this, you ready? We just had somebody in our church. Get engaged even a week ago. So they really need to listen to this, especially at what I'm about to tell you. They're known as husband and wife, but there is no physical contact. Now that person's here right now. I feel like bringing him down on stage just to remind him of that. But I don't think I need to. But there was no physical contact and often no social contact. Can you imagine that? You're engaged either by your parents because they brought you together with a girl or a guy. So it's a guy and a girl. Been brought together either by their parents or a professional matchmaker. But there's no physical contact through phase two betrothal and hardly any social contact. There's a little bit but not much. They restricted it severely. In fact, each of them, the guy and the girl, began, continued, rather, to live with their parents. Now, during betrothal, Joseph, let's get back to Joseph, the man of the hour, he wouldn't even be allowed to go to war if there was a war that erupted. Betrothed men weren't allowed to enter a battle. It was considered a travesty to die from your, between your engagement and your marriage. So they would be protected from any possible injury in battle. They wanted him to live to see the day of his wedding. So beautifully did the Jewish people consider marriage. It's in this second phase of marriage that we find Joseph and Mary. At the end of the betrothal period was the third phase, of course, the wedding. Now listen to this. If you're going to get married, you may want to know this. Weddings often lasted seven days in Israel. Seven days. They were incredibly joyful. With a great many guests, they wanted whole communities, if the town was small enough, to to join into the festivities. Therefore, now listen, this is key, they were very expensive. Weddings were incredibly expensive. So to try to help with the expense... Paid for by the bride's family, particularly the bride's father, the groom's father, the groom's parents, had to give the bride's parents a dowry. The dowry had a lot of reasons, had a lot of purposes. It was a payment for the groom's family at the point of betrothal. It was paid either in goods or services, often animals, sometimes monies. Sometimes promises of service. The dowry was, and this is interesting, this is important, it was a kind of life insurance for the, li- for the wife in case the husband dies. Now this is really interesting and this is going to have implications in our story. It was also divorce insurance because the husband gave up the dowry if he divorced his wife during the betrothal period. But now Joseph, back to the text, discovers that his betrothed wife was pregnant, a baby conceived by the Holy Spirit. Who is going to believe her story? Her story is that she has been pure and remains pure to her husband, faithful to her husband. Who would believe that? In fact, let me make a case for why it was even a little bit more Difficult for Mary to prove that because her name has a really interesting meaning. It's taken from Miriam, Mary is, it's a very common Jewish name, has a negative connotation. It means in the Greek, rebelliousness. So I want you to know that, and if you've got your Bibles with you, it might not be a bad idea to underline Mary's name, put it out into the margin, rebelliousness. That's what her name means, taken from Miriam, who rebelled against her brother Moses, and God gave her leprosy, later healed her. So imagine, now listen, get yourself in the story. You can't read the Word of God from a mile away. You can't read it as if, it's something that only happened 2,000 years ago. you got to get back into the text. And you've got to put yourself into the situation. So I want you to imagine the gossip. I want you to imagine the whispers of all of the town of Nazareth. I told you last week, maybe 300 people in that town. They're all learning, because you know how small towns are. They're all learning that she's pregnant, but not yet married. She's betrothed. And they're looking at her as living up to, or maybe even better put, living down to, her namesake, rebelliousness. Now, had she lived in the Old Testament, the way would have been very clear for Joseph. She could be stoned to death. That was the penalty. In fact, you saw that with a woman caught in sexual sin as they brought her before Jesus. And they had stones in their hands. And Jesus said... Who without sin can throw that first stone? Well, that was a death penalty for this. They really weren't able in the time of Christ to carry that out unless Rome gave them permission. There was only two cases where you could, one clear case that you could put somebody to death in Israel if you were a Jewish government. And that was if a Gentile went into the temple beyond the enclosure. That was the only time. But so if if Joseph and Mary were alive in the Old Testament, well, she could have been stoned to death, but Jewish capital punishment was rarely ever enforced by the New Testament. So he had two options. Here's his two options. Here's what Joseph, here's what he could do. He had two options in front of him. He could charge Mary in a very public court for adultery, often taking place in the local synagogue. That's option number one, it'd be public, humiliating, and shameful. Or second option, he could take Mary with him before witnesses and write out and pay for a private bill of divorce, which is be he and Mary, probably family members, as the witnesses. Can you feel the shock of Joseph. Come on, you got to get into the sandals. You got to get into his life. Can you feel the hurt? Can you feel the anger, the embarrassment that he had to have had? Mary, she tells him in the little social contact that she has available, she tells him about the angel Gabriel. She tells him what the angel said. She insists that she did not have any action of unfaithfulness, that this baby was from God, pregnant from God. But listen, nothing like this had ever happened before. It's never going to happen again. And Joseph could not get his mind around it. Now for a moment, settle in your mind, brother and sister, this fact. We cannot... Plan out the adventures that God has for us. You cannot lay out your life and then tell God to bless it. God's the one that creates the adventures that we're on. And they are often very unlike the ones that we saw coming. I can tell you right now without a shadow of a doubt, Joseph did not enter engagement and betrothal thinking anything like this was going to happen and all of us make plans all of us order our lives listen you do it i do it that's the way life is lived it's okay to do that but when god sets us on his adventures listen there's always going to be detours there's always going to be intersections that we will never see coming and when we get to them when we get to those detours when we get to those intersections They're going to bring about what we're going to see in the very next point. This is your future, I'm promising you. Now, I made a few promises today. This one's going to bear out. Point number two. God's adventures create crises of faith. Brother and sister, I'm telling you, this is coming. God will call you to something that you never saw coming, and when it comes, it's going to create, for a time, a crisis. And that crisis is going to center on your faith, verse 19. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. The Bible lets us know a lot about Joseph in this little statement. He's a just man. He was righteous. He was right before God. He put his faith in God. You cannot be a righteous, just man or just woman without putting your faith in God. He loved to be obedient. God was a priority. The law was his authority. This is Joseph. He has impeccable character. He's a kind and godly man. And publicly, publicly humiliating and shaming Mary was something he could not do, he would not do. For Joseph, the path through this unforeseen, terrible circumstance seemed to be clear. Divorce. So he made up his mind to do so quietly. And by the way, that's a word that means privately. That's another one you might want to put in your margin. Privately. Remember, he had two options. One was a public court of shame. The other one was a private bill of divorce in front of witnesses. He chose the latter, It was a private, quiet divorce. Now look what happens, verse 20. But as he considered these things, now our our translations, let me stop for a second. Our translations tone that word down. It's a terrible translation. It makes it appear as if Joseph is sitting in his private study, calmly, rationally, thinking about what to do. That's not what this word means. It means angry, passionate reasoning that comes from a spirit that is aroused. He is furious. He is perplexed. He is confused. His dreams have shattered. His world has fallen apart. He doesn't know what to do. The only thing he knows he cannot do is shame the woman that he loves. He will privately divorce her. He's considering this. And I wouldn't blame him. Let's think through this. It might be he's thinking about his own reputation. Now, think about this. The eyes of people in Nazareth are going to look at Mary's swelling belly and then straight to Joseph's perceived guilty face. Who else is going to get her pregnant? So he might be thinking of his own reputation. I don't know. But he wants to follow God fully. But you can imagine, right? Mary's explanation that God conceived a baby within her still virgin body was likely met with Joseph's unbelief. He has nothing in life to gain traction on this moment. There's nothing that's happened like this. A virgin birth was not possible in his mind, she'd surely been with another man. And by the way, nothing has changed today that there is an impossibility about the virgin birth. You know, for the doctrine of the virgin birth of Christ is doubted by many. You know, they took a poll of Protestant students who were studying for the ministry. Now, you get the context of this poll? These weren't liberal scholars. These weren't people off the street in New York or in Manhattan. These were people who were studying to be pastors in a Protestant seminary. And they found that 56% of those students rejected the belief that Jesus was born of a virgin. 56%. Now, if I went privately to each of you and asked you, come on, just give it to me honest, give it to me straight. Do you really believe that Jesus was born to a virgin? I'm pretty sure not everybody even in here would say yes. Well, let's get back to Joseph. He's full of anguish. He's in emotional overload. It seems he just shut down. Haven't you ever done that? Have you ever had something so emotionally overburdening you that you you actually get drowsy and you go to sleep? This seems to be what happened to Joseph. He falls asleep. God sends him help in his time of crisis. Verse 20. While he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph... Son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. So there might be some in here now, let's just just really think through this, who either do not believe that Christ was born of a virgin, or you've decided it's above your pay grade theologically, so you just don't think about it. And if you've taken religious classes at a secular university you've been confronted with a plethora of stories where gods impregnate women to have babies who grow up to do great things secular liberal professors tell you they've told me that matthew borrowed from popular virgin stories of the day virgin birth stories of the day yet the miracle of the virgin birth is no more now listen think about this it's no more incomprehensible than the miracle of the new birth of salvation Think you through this for a moment with me for just as god created in mary life creating a baby boy he creates life within a believing sinner's dead heart dead nature dead from sin And creates out of that person, in that person, a new person, one who's made with a new nature like God's. There's nothing that's in the virgin birth that's really not represented in salvation's birth. And the virgin birth of Jesus is critically connected to the core of the gospel. And that will get us to point three. Here it is. God's adventures will show the world the means of salvation. Now, let me give you some bearings on this. Okay, we're on a journey, by the way. This is a narrative journey. We're working through a narrative event in the Gospels. And sometimes when you do that, it's not crisp and clean and linear. So sometimes it's good to stop and get your compass headings again and find out where we're going. This is all about how God calls you and calls me onto the adventures called the Great Commission. Preparing the world for the return of Jesus. So how is your life, brother and sister, how is your life preparing people for jesus now take that compass bearing and go back into point number three god's adventures that he gives us will show the world the means of salvation verse 21 she will bear a son and you shall call his name jesus for he will save his people from their sins now mary's pregnancy was a supernatural event This is why, by the way, Matthew never in this story, in this narrative, never calls Joseph the baby's father. Well, physically, Jesus would be Mary's son. Legally, the baby is going to be Joseph's son through adoption... It's going to tie Jesus to the bloodline of David. That's why, Gabriel, that's why the angel, whoever it was, says Joseph, son of David. So now Jesus is coming through legal adoption, David. People believe Mary came through the line of David as well, but we know for sure Joseph did. But ultimately, while he's Mary's physical son, Joseph's legal son, he's God's only son. And he's going to bring salvation to the world. The importance, the importance of the virgin birth in scriptures is to show that salvation doesn't come from man. It can never come from man. It can only come from God, who caused Mary to conceive the Christ child. And the name of the baby given, is given to Joseph, also given to Mary. And that name is Jesus. Remember, Jesus is the Greek form of the Old Testament, named Joshua. It just simply means the Lord saves. Or God is salvation. And you get to see that in the the most famous verse of all of Scripture. Almost anybody is at least familiar with it. Most can quote it. But most don't know what the verse following it says. Here's the famous one. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. We know that, right? We've been taught that. We've heard it. But here's this, the verse right after it. Verse 17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. Listen, he's not condemning the world. But in order that the world might be saved through him. Sent Jesus to save. What we see here in the baby's name is the core of the gospel message. The good news in the midst of the bad news. Now listen, we've got to get this in our minds. The gospel is the good news made so good because the bad news is so terrible. But if you're going to present to somebody the good news and you're going to leave the bad news out, there's nothing compelling them. And if you present to them the bad news, but you leave the good news out, you're gonna make them flee from God. The gospel always has to have this together, and the angel is gonna do the same exact thing. Look what he says The good news from the angel is Jesus will save his people. That's the good news. By the way, you know what save means? This is important. You wanna remember this. Get this down in your mind as an anchor. It means to rescue from danger but don't leave it there, and to protect and keep safe. So you got to rescue from danger, and then there's protection, and then there's keeping alive. That's what the word save means in the Greek. You've got to get all three of those nuances together, put them all in save, and you've got the good news of the gospel. The bad news is this. Jesus is going to have to rescue his people, quote, from sin, from their sins, unquote. Sin is the bad news. Sin is why we need a rescuing God. Sin is deeper, by the way, than behavior. We keep thinking that sin is something that I shouldn't have done or something that I should have done and didn't do. We target behavior with it. Sin is a lot deeper. It's a heart that is morally defiant. It's a heart deep down that is at war with God and it produces actions that are for me and not for anybody else. That's what sin is. That's why it's lethal. It's deadly. Sin is a heart full of desires and demands and selfishness simply that is at war with God. Here we go. God told Adam and Eve... They had everything to enjoy, but one single part of creation. They had all of creation, all of the Garden of Eden. There was only one aspect that they could not have. And if you're a parent, you're thinking, well, God, that's your first mistake, meaning it respectfully. But you never tell a child what they cannot do, right? That's what we know as parents. Well, God has the right to do that. And God knows the danger if they ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So he says, listen, you got everything but one tree's fruit. Don't eat from that. But they defied him. It's not just their behavior. It's a heart that looked at the fruit as being what they wanted for themselves their desires were for the fruit this is a heart problem sin is so they defied him and they took the one thing that god told them not to because they wanted it for themselves to be something greater than they were that's idolatry And the state of innocence that God created them in, it now was fractured. That very second that their teeth bit into that fruit, it fractured their souls. They were guilty, they were sullied, they were broken. If you're going to remember anything about sin, you might want to remember this. Sin is cosmic treason. Against the most high God who is the owner and the rightful ruler of his own creation. That's what sin is. It's rebellion, defiance, war, treason. And if Jesus, by the way, God, God, people actually say this. What's the big deal about sin? God, why can't you just overlook it? Well, God cannot shrug off sin turn a blind eye to it, he has to judge it, or listen, God cannot be holy. He cannot be just. If he he has a mulligan that he can pull out and give to Adam, then God's not impeccably holy. There's times where he could just say, no big deal. God will never say that. Sin breaks relationships. And it brings death. And if Jesus did not die on the cross in our place, then listen, friends, you've got to die for your own sins. I've got to die for my own sins. We're going to be judged. And Romans 6 talks about earning a paycheck in sin. The wages of sin. It's death. It's a paycheck called death. You don't want that one. So listen, either your sin and my sin... Let me me maybe say that a little bit more starkly. Either your sin is on you and you bear the penalty, or it's on Christ who willingly bore the penalty. And this is what Peter's going to help us see in his epistle. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, the cross. Himself, why? Because only Christ has ever lived life without sin. Pastor Austin brought that in. He overcame all of them. God's own sacrifice for humanity, that moment. Listen, this is the key part, that moment that you turn to Christ in faith, that very moment. Now listen, not everybody does this. It's more than believing, because even the demons believe. They've got right doctrine. That's what that means. They know God's holy. They know God is Lord. They know God is Savior. But trusting is what you do when you give yourself through that doctrine to the one who it's about. Trusting is relationship. And the very moment that you have faith, the moment you trust God to forgive you of your sins, God transfers your sins, and he puts the guilt of them on his son on the cross, and he takes the righteousness and the forgiveness and the innocence and the holiness of Jesus, and he transfers it to you. So there's a banking transaction in your soul in the moment of faith you're forgiven clean and right with God because of what Jesus did on the cross that's the name Jesus that's why he's named Jesus and you might have done listen listen. this is true of a lot of us you may have done some terrible things in your life but you can have peace that Jesus willingly bore your sins on the cross and never again, ever, will you be charged with them. This baby, Joseph, the angel saying, is the means through which God will save you and Mary and everyone who will place their faith and their trust in him. Here's Let me just simplify it. Faith is taking your paycheck to the bank to deposit it or having it automatically deposited and never worrying if it's going to clear the bank. You don't need to do this. You don't need to keep checking on line with your bank with God to see if you're, you know, if, if God's had the funds to forgive you of your, of your sin. That's what the word forgive means. It means drop the charges, make the payment. It means you're exonerated. It means you're no longer in the red, you're in the black with God. The very moment that you put your faith in God... The death of Jesus, who earned the payment for our sins, gets deposited in your soul, and the very fact that he rose from the grave tells you it cleared the bank of God's righteousness. Christian, you have no more sin that you're culpable for. You cannot be charged by the devil with anything anymore. You are free and clear and innocent in Christ. This is Jesus. There's a lot in the name. And Joseph's Christmas adventure was to help raise this child who would bring about God's salvation. And it's going to get us to point number four. God's adventures will always be accompanied by his presence. Verse 22. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. His name is Jesus, means God is salvation. But one of his titles will be called Emmanuel. Now break the word down up on the screen. Look up on the screen. L is the name for God, E-L. Emmanuel means with us. Emmanuel is with us is God god with us and jesus emmanuel god with us jesus god is here to save us from our sins listen emmanuel means that god will never ever leave you or forsake you and this promise by the way is all through scriptures he is the friend that sticks closer than a brother Proverbs 18:24 His presence was with Israel day and night remember when they escaped Egypt and they wandered for 40 years he never abandoned them his presence was with them He promises his presence in every great adventure that he calls you to The great adventure is this Matthew 28 Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. But look at what it ends with. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. That's Emmanuel. All right, so let's get this theology off of the doctrinal level and get the doctrine down into the pragmatic, the orthopraxy. That means you live out. It's right living. Orthodoxy, right thinking orthopraxy right living let's get it down to orthopraxy listen god will not call you brother and sister to any task that he will not stay with you through the entire thing you got to get that in there because he's going to create a crisis of faith in you his adventures will create a crisis of faith because they're going to be very unlike what you thought was going to happen If there's a task he needs you to do, he's going to be with you every step, making it clear to you. Listen, if you don't see it clearly now, you're not going to be able to blow the fog away through trying harder. You've got to get on your knees and let the Spirit of God blow it away so you can see clearly. It is God's job to make his will clear to you. And he does it through godly people. He does it through the Word of God. He does it through the Spirit of God. If there's a lifestyle choice that he wants you to stop, now come on, I'm hitting some toes here. If there's one that he wants you to stop, he's going to be with you the whole way to help you end it and then begin a life that pleases him. When you do not know God's will and you are confused, listen, Jesus is there. He's the light for your path. When you're hurting, he's there He's there as the balm of Gilead. It's one of the titles for him. He's bringing healing to your soul. When your faith is failing, Jesus is there as the author and the perfecter of your faith. He is Emmanuel, God with us. There's only one right response to this truth. And that's the final point, point five. God's adventures are to be immediately obeyed. Now, this is a theme that if you've been here now through this, the third of these sermons in this series, this is a theme that you keep seeing. When God issues his call to adventures to prepare the world for Christ, you must obey them immediately. The only right response to the call of God with his adventures. Is obedience. What explanation could Joseph have concluded other than Mary was unfaithful to him? I mean, guess who the most likely candidate was that got her pregnant? So now his reputation's sullied. His reputation is threatened. She's ruined his dreams, sullied, dirtied his name, but now he has a command from an angel to marry her with an explanation that God is the one who conceived this child in her belly. What does he do? Verse 24. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Now, you got to get the order. He woke up and did. The very moment that God made it clear, he acted on it in obedience. He did what the angel of the Lord commanded him. The angel of Kyrios, the New Testament term for the Yahweh of the Old Testament. Two marks, and ready? Now listen, this is it. Two marks of a godly person are immediate obedience and full obedience. You got that? Two marks. You want to know if you're a godly, obedient Christian? Then when God makes his will clear to you, it is immediately obeyed and it is fully obeyed. We have a saying in the Ackley family, my kids hate it. It goes like this, delayed obedience is what? Disobedience. That's right straight from Saul's life in the Old Testament. Delayed obedience is disobedience. God's adventures are to be immediately obeyed. You know, let me tell you something before I bring this to a close. Last week when we were going through this sermon series on Mary... Mary's Christmas Adventures. I had a lady come up to me in between the first and second service and said, Tim, i got to tell you something. For some time now, I'm a school teacher. For some time, I've been sensing God telling me that the answer to all of what's going on in our district, all of what's going on in our school, the answer is prayer. We must begin getting people praying. And your sermon was proof that I need to do this immediately. And I said, you're right, because whenever God issues his summons for you to get on an adventure to prepare the world for Christ, you've got to answer that call immediately and fully. Don't worry about your reputation. Let God worry about it. You be subtle, shrewd, and wise, and faithful. That's his call to you. That's his call to me. Here it is. you ready? Five points. God's adventures are going to look very different than what we expect. You better bank on that. That's going to happen. And his adventures will cause in us a crisis of faith. But his adventures will show the world the means of salvation. And they're going to be always accompanied by his presence. And when he makes them clear, you and I must respond immediately in full obedience. Amen. Let's pray.